the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Do not fear. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. This phrase, do not fear, occurs over 35 times in the Bible. And so it's very clear that the Lord God wants his people in both the Old Testament period and the New Testament period, including our own day, to know that it is essential that a Christian not live in fear. Today, however, in the West, in America, where I am speaking from, it is clear to me that we have exchanged a risk-taking culture for a fear-based one. We live in a fear driven, fear-based culture. The dominant paradigm of our age is that of fear. And it's fascinating to me that rarely has the connection been made between the so-called secularization of America and the fearification of America. Because I think these two trends are really one. People are afraid because people have lost a theological paradigm. Now, I don't mean it's a good thing to, uh, to be religious but not born again, but I do mean that if you have, in general, reference to a divine being who controls your life in some sense, that is going to affect you in numerous ways, and it's probably going to mitigate fear, at least to some degree. We're not speaking of the glorious new birth of Christianity here, necessarily which truly defeats fear and liberates you from captivity to fear. But even any general broader paradigm in which you recognize some kind of divine being who rules over your life and is shepherding your life in some form is probably going to mitigate fear. But when you lose that reference, when you lose that frame, what is going to happen to you, among other effects, is that your life is going to be very you-driven. It's all about you. And when life is all about you, and there is no divine being over you, caring for you, helping you in any meaningful sense, that is going naturally to ramp up your inborn fear. You're going to be afraid. You're going to live afraid. And that is particularly going to happen when there is a time of disease, illness, viruses going around, natural disasters, so on and so forth. You're fine probably at least a good amount of the time, at least some people are, when there is no scary event happening around them. But those who have lost any sense of the divine, any sense at all, are especially vulnerable in really scary times, in unusual times. They don't have anyone to turn to. There's no one to pray to. They're not members of any religious body of any kind, so there's not a sense of any movement greater than themselves. They're not getting any real sense of uplift from anyone. The church of many people today is social media. They fire up social media when they're lonely. They fire up social media when they're afraid. 
They fire up social media when they need a touch, when they want wisdom from someone else. They don't go to gospel-preaching churches, by and large, but they do go to the church of social media, and the church of social media is not transcendent in the least. There's nothing higher there. It's all this worldly. And in fact, the longer you spend on social media platforms in general, the more you're going to plummet downward. The more depressed you're going to get, the more anxious you're going to get. Studies show this over and over again. The more time you spend on social media and on the internet, the more depressed you get, the more anxious you become. All of this means, as I say, that my supposition is that we have exchanged a risk-taking culture for a fear-based one. Part of this, a, a huge part of it, I think really the crucial part of this exchange, this terrible exchange, is that when you do believe in God, especially, of course, from the prism of Christian faith, you are free to step out fearlessly into the world. You're free to go, as Abraham heard in Genesis 12, and as the disciples heard in Matthew 28, to go into the world. There's a lot more to say about that mission in both Old and New Testament, but suffice it to say that throughout the Bible, the call of God to his followers is not to stay, and it's certainly not to cower. It's to go on ahead. It's to move forward. It's to not stay still. All of that is grounded in a massive vision of a great God. When you follow God by divine grace, it is not that you are smothered in a blanket and can never move as if you're swaddled by the divine. It is like you are shot out of a cannon. It is like you are launched from a catapult into the world. You need wisdom, you need the fruits of the Spirit, and so on. But your life is anchored in God, and so you can move forward. You can, in, de- in using that biblical word once more, just two letters, go. You are free to take risks. Now, understand that last phrase in the right way, free to take risks. Even saying that today, I suspect, sets off alarms for folks. You start talking about taking risks, and the exceptions and nuances and qualifications pile up outside the door like an instantaneous blizzard in North Dakota. Wait, wait, you're talking about taking risks? We can't take risks? What about... What about all the problems? What about all the all the bad things that could happen? What about how hurt we could get? What about everything that could go wrong? You see, such instincts like that are understandable and human. But the quickness with which they crop up in our day shows us that I think this hypothesis is right. We're in a culture that disdains and is afraid of risk-taking. The risk-taker is the one who has looked askance by everybody. Now, of course, there's bad ways to take risks, and the Bible doesn't enfranchise those one bit. Anybody who would step out in faith, anybody who would go in a directly biblical sense, must do so in wisdom, must do so with prudence, must do so even, we could say, with caution. And yet, nonetheless, you cannot miss that throughout the Bible, the call to go echoes. Today, however, in the West, we find ourselves in a fear-based culture where we want to do anything but go. This has effects in other areas of our social life. This is going, as many of you are likely guessing, even as I am talking, to affect manhood. Because men throughout the Bible are the ones who are squarely called to lead in going and taking risks. 
and stepping out in faith, to put it differently, in the name of God. We know that in Joshua 1.9, Joshua is called by the Lord to be strong and courageous, to not be afraid. Joshua is called to lead the people of God and taking the territory of the promised land by the call of God. That's not Joshua's own initiative because he's ramped up and heated up. It's God's call to glorify the divine name. He's called to be strong and courageous. It's a man who is called to exemplify that and lead the people of God in that mission. But today, that kind of posture on the part of a man is labeled unhelpful by many. Or to use the language of therapy, many such masculine traits associated with adventure and risk-taking and courage are called antisocial. There's even a disorder called antisocial personality disorder. And a number of the traits of this disorder really are problematic. Here are some of them that are bad. Disregard for right and wrong. Persistent lying or deceit to exploit others. Using charm or wit to manipulate others for personal gain or personal pleasure. Okay, these are all bad things. These are all traits that the Bible would very much speak against. And there are different figures throughout the scripture, actually, who show some of those traits and are condemned and at the very least not praised for showing them. But then think of what else is heaped up around being antisocial. Hostility, significant irritability, agitation, aggression, or violence. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, being around somebody who is significantly irritable is very unpleasant indeed. All of us will know that. That is not a good way to live. And yet, look what else is linked in there. Aggression. Violence. Now, this is part of how we understand that our culture is executing a broader move than we might think. And transitioning to a fear-based culture, it is transitioning out of any form of a masculine paradigm. It's transitioning out of any form of a society or a culture in which men lead. Because men do, on average, show greater aggression and have a greater disposition and ability to perform violence. There is bad aggression and there is definitely bad violence. But there is also good aggression and there is also necessary violence. In a world where there are evil men, there must be aggressors who act against those evil men and even, as needed, do violence to them. So you must not make the mistake, the intentional mistake, that our culture is making and associate assertiveness, aggressiveness, even violence with negativity, with badness, with evil itself. Further down on the list of antisocial traits from one resource, psychological resource, unnecessary risk-taking or dangerous behavior. Well, there it is. Of course, there's a bad way to take risks. I've already said that. But yet, look at what can be placed in that box, all risk-taking. Has this not been the experience of many people throughout the world and certainly in the West in the last couple years? We have faced a real virus. We have needed to exercise wisdom. There are vulnerable people in the population who should be cared for. Absolutely. The Bible is clear about that in Leviticus 13, 14, elsewhere. People we know have suffered from this virus. Virus, excuse me. Some of them have died. So this is not nothing. And it should be treated like a real virus. Nonetheless, the entire cast of our society has shifted toward being fear-based, approaching life fearfully, approaching human contact fearfully, approaching even breathing fearfully. To breathe now in a normal, unrestricted way is bad. 
think about what mask culture signifies. Now, this isn't going to be a a deep dive podcast on masks or such matters. It's not not a big response to lockdowns and these sorts of things, though uh, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know that I have thoughts on those matters and they are not positive in general. You shouldn't lock down the healthy. You should help the sick or the vulnerable and take care of them. What we do need to be clear about, though, is that the most basic function of existence, of living today, is seen negatively. Breathing. Could there be environments where you would want to be careful in terms of breathing? Yes, if you enter a NICU unit or something like this, you would want to be careful. But in general, you always are dealing never with an ideal world with perfect choices, In a fallen world, you're always dealing with trade-offs, to use the term of Thomas Sowell, the conservative economist. So you can restrict breathing, but you're giving things up. You're you're making a trade-off. You're not creating a perfect world, and you're certainly not robbing the world of any potential threat or danger. You're living in such a society under a reign and regime of fear. Fear is dominating. Fear is everywhere. Fear is motivating every public decision seemingly that is made. And we have watched, strangely, in the West, as basically just about everyone has gone along with this new fear-based culture. We've transitioned out of any sense of a risk-taking one, at least to a serious degree, and we have basically seamlessly moved into living in a fear-based culture, which, as I say, is synonymous with transitioning out of a masculine culture into an unmasculine one into a more feminine one. In such a culture, people want an easy solution. People want a niceified solution. And people are very much tempted by utopian activism. Utopian activism is the key. Every politician needs to respond. Everyone needs to have a plan. There always needs to be somebody meddling in life, private life and public life, or else there will be a very serious price to pay on social media. This is a liberal frame of mind, leftist frame of mind, or if you want to switch it, progressive frame of mind. It's not a conservative frame of mind. A conservative frame of mind, which I would argue is grounded in scripture ultimately, is not a utopian activist frame of mind, where if we just order everyone's life all the time, we will solve for X and there will be no problems in the world. A conservative frame of mind wants to preserve human liberty, a right sense of human autonomy, human agency, all understood for me under the banner of biblical sovereignty, of course. But someone like me can go to scripture and see that there is much grounding for treating the human person like a free being. There's all sorts of material we could call along those lines. A utopian activist culture that is synonymous with a fear-based culture seeks to get its fingers into every little nook, cranny, and crevice of your life and norm your life so that there is nothing to fear. So there's a need for continual action and new policies and new measures. Things have to be tinkered with at all times or else you're not safe and everyone else is not safe. And furthermore, a part of this kind of society or culture is that it is led by minority persons, people who are potentially susceptible to illness. I mean, I don't mean minority in the sense of skin color or something like this or ethnicity. I mean, those, for example, in health terms who might face something catastrophic if they do get sick. So the entire society or community needs to be turned in order to help them. 
That is really what has happened in the West in recent years. You could almost call it the tyranny of the minority. If anybody out there is at risk, then everybody's life needs to be changed and transformed to help that one person. Now, Christianity, of course, is not cold-hearted toward the vulnerable. Christians are those who should always have an eye to the vulnerable and those who are in need. There's much we could say there. The Christian gospel itself is a call, once it takes root in your heart, to live in love for your neighbor. That's the second greatest commandment, for example. And that's going to have all kinds of effects in a Christian's life. But fundamentally, it's a utopian activist culture that tries to lead your life for you and make your decisions for you and take away your liberty in one category after another. That very much includes, by the way, religious liberty. You shouldn't have religious liberty. You shouldn't have liberty of thought or of speech, because if you do, someone could get hurt. Do you understand, at this point, how a fear-based culture affects you from every angle? That is the kind of mentality and paradigm that dominates now on many college and university campuses. If anybody is offended, if anybody's feelings are hurt, the entire campus should be reworked so that person is under no threat doesn't suffer anything unwanted. We have transitioned out of a risk-taking culture, a liberty-loving culture, into a fear-based culture. All of this, as I say, is deeply, implacably opposed to biblical virtues. The Bible's call is not to a niceified life where there is no challenge where you face no risks, but to righteous courage. This is true of God's call to the great leaders of Old and New Testament. Yes, it absolutely is. But the Bible is a call to all the people of God to show righteous courage. The Bible strengthens us and ennobles us and summons us forward. The Bible does not, as I said earlier, swaddle us in a snuggie and cause us to hide out in a cave because there might be something potentially dangerous out there that we shouldn't face. Think of a text like Joshua 1, 9 once more. Have I not commanded you? The Lord says, be strong and courageous, Joshua hears. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I've heard these verses quoted in songs and sermons for years as a Christian. It is shocking to me how little application of these verses, this kind of verse from Scripture, there is today. It's not even application that's necessary, though. In other words, you've got to work out how to apply a biblical principle. It's just straight-up basic obedience. You don't get extra credit if you're not frightened as a Christian. You don't get extra credit if you're not dismayed if you're strong, if you're courageous. That's your calling from God. Now, God isn't this angry, chastising, personal being who hates his people and is tired of them. He could be that way in terms of the behavior of his people throughout the Bible, but he's not. He's gracious. He's loving. He's kind. Nonetheless, he issues numerous calls throughout the Scripture, and his people don't get extra credit or bonus points for obeying those calls. Obeying the Bible is our basic call as a Christian. We're under the administration of the New Covenant. 
were bound to the new covenant and its teachings as the greater Moses has come and has given us the law in its fulfilled form, fulfilled in him, Jesus Christ. So where there is a biblical teaching, where there's a New Testament principle, we obey it. Obedience is not legalism. Obedience is not fundamentalism. Obedience is basic Christianity 101. And someone who has no instinct or heart or inclination to obey God and to obey the Word of God is very likely not a Christian. I mean, over the long haul. If, if they continually and consistently manifest no desire at all to obey God, as he calls us in the New Testament, and if they show no sensitivity and love for his truth throughout the Bible, including truth like Joshua 1, we're not in the days of Joshua, but there is truth here that directly claims us and calls to us, then that person is not a Christian. We all struggle to obey, of course, as believers. We shouldn't, but we do. And so we give thanks to God for his amazing grace. But the Christian is one who consistently and regularly obeys God and wants to do so. God has not called us to do so against ourselves, but God has given us in redemption, in regeneration, a desire, a zeal for him, for his word. We love him and we want to show our love through obedience. Now that idea, that last one has been soundly, thoroughly scorched in recent days, but it it is not in fact sound. You should equate love and obedience in many dimensions of your life. They're not exactly the same, but throughout the scripture, it is clear that you show love when you obey God. It is loving to obey, and it is unloving to disobey. All this to say, the Bible does not tell us that if we follow God, our life now is about avoiding risks and avoiding danger and avoiding hardship. That is how our culture is preaching and teaching to us today. That is exactly the message of a culture that has lost God, that has lost transcendence, that has no connection to a greater plan or mission of the divine. Scripture has a better word. Scripture calls us to righteous courage. Scripture gives us not a reckless spirit, but a fearless spirit. They are not the same. A fearless spirit is a go-forward spirit. A fearless spirit is a Genesis 1, 26 to 28 spirit. Take dominion spirit. It's not sit back on your heels because you're scared something bad could happen. Something bad could happen to you. Do you think it was easy for Joshua and the Israelites to take the promised land? It was not. That was a stunning call. There was going to be tremendous hardship in doing so. There was. It's, it's very clear throughout the book of Joshua that that was no easy mission. It was very dangerous. It was very dangerous to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. It was very dangerous, even if you weren't in that form of leadership in the first century, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Throughout history, nothing is more dangerous than being a Christian. Being a Christian puts a bullseye on your back. In a worldly sense, but especially in a spiritual sense, Satan hates you. You have an enemy that tirelessly seeks to drive you out of your Christian faith and your Christian commitment. That is a very serious set of affairs indeed. So what is needful for you and for me 
is not to embrace a kind of paradigm where we never step forward and we always seek to avoid anything challenging. We need much wisdom and we do need to exercise caution and we need to be slow to speak and we need to be slow to anger. But nonetheless, we are fundamentally called as Christians to a posture of courage. And this has big effects for us socially. We should strive to be godly and loving as believers. We have been loved eternally. We will be loved eternally. We are now loved with an everlasting love. And so that should ripple into our life in all sorts of ways. But we should not try to be liked. We are not trying to win popularity contests. And we are not trying to live in such a way that the natural man approves of us and likes us. We should give no moral offense to the gospel. If we do so, God will judge us. We are in the wrong, squarely. But Christians are nowhere called to shape their life by the opinions of unbelievers. You should never bring scandal to the Christian faith by your conduct. But nowhere does Christ or any biblical voice call you to figure out what the natural man likes and values and thus order your life accordingly. That is a compromised way to think, not a Christian way to think. In practical form, while always seeking to bear the fruits of the Spirit and love your neighbor, stop trying to win the popularity contest. If the leaders you're under, the pastor you're under, the elders you're under at a church are belligerent and bellicose, that is a bad sign. That is not a healthy reality. But if they are trying to be liked by the culture, that is very problematic. That should trouble you greatly because there is no way to take the scandal of the cross out of true Christianity. We don't want to get into fights for no good reason, but we are called to contend for the faith. Jude 20. If you are in ministry, as we have talked about elsewhere, you are one who is called to give instruction and in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. This is not about being liked as the ultimate test the ultimate test of your ministry, or more generally, of basic Christian faithfulness, is obedience. Are you obedient to God? That is of ultimate value. By the grace of God working in you to present you blameless on the last day, are you faithful to the Word? Are you faithful to your God? God is never going to hold you accountable because people didn't like you because you are a bold, fearless Christian. The apostles were killed for being bold, fearless Christians, not because they were belligerent and bellicose. We must all repent of our sin. We must all watch ourselves closely, watch our not only our doctrine, but watch our life closely. Nonetheless, the apostles who wrote much of the New Testament were predominantly killed, and before they were killed, imprisoned. So this, lastly, leads us to say our greatest need today. We need manly leadership in the Christian church that will be fearless and immovable 
in the face of opposition. We desperately need men to lead our churches who will exercise fearlessness and what you could call immovability in the face of opposition. This is in no sense militating against being loving and kind. We must always strive to be loving and kind. But we cannot help but think of a text like 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight in terms of where we are in a fear-based culture. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We need fearless and courageous leadership today. Part of what that entails and involves is a risk-taking spirit shaped by biblical priorities, a spirit that does not fall back and only play defense, but goes on offense, goes on offense in our own personal lives against our sin, and goes on offense in terms of the broader work of the church to plant churches and revitalize churches and strengthen Christians and win the lost and make disciples. There's only going to be advancement if there is courage, fearlessness, and immovability. And the virtue from Scripture that we are least valuing today is that, an immovability grounded in Christ. We are talking a great deal about being nice and being gentle, and we must reckon with those realities and embrace them and manifest them in our lives as Christians. But fundamentally, that fits with the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age will applaud you for being nice and gentle. The spirit of the age will not applaud you for being immovable and fearless in Christ. It will decry you, attack you, oppose you, and even persecute you. So, we have moved out of a risk-taking culture into a fear-based one, But there is an antidote before us. It is simply to go back to the trustworthy word that we have been taught. It is to go back to the good ways and the old paths. It is to hear the Lord speak to men like Joshua and to be strong and courageous. We are not the hero in and of ourselves. We will not find the strength in our natural self to carry out this mission. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have union with Jesus Christ, and we are loved forever by the Heavenly Father. And so we can undertake this mission. We can push back against the drift of our environment and show the world a better way. Listen to me. People are starving for courageous and fearless leadership. It must first come from the church. It should not first come from men in the military or truckers or pilots or others. I'm grateful it is coming from those groups. I'm thankful for the work, the good work that is being done that is having major effects. But fundamentally, pastors are the ones who should be leading out in this area. Christians are the ones in terms of their witness in local churches that should be fearless and immovable. And we should never make the mistake of reading manhood, courageous, assertive, biblical manhood as antisocial. Fathers and mothers, you want to train your boys to bear, by God's grace, all the fruits of the Spirit. But you must know that Scripture so associates courage with manhood that it recurs as a theme the call to be courageous in both Old and New Testament. To act like a man, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, is to show courage. 
So the essence of manhood in a social social sense is courage. So never make the mistake of taking the culture's cues on masculinity and thinking that if your boy ever shows aggression or assertiveness or even in a properly framed sense violence, I'm talking about sports or something like this, contact sports, or even opposing somebody who would threaten his family, he needs to take a pill and he needs to be sent to therapy. Boys have to be shepherded and discipled and shaped. This is a bigger topic for another podcast. I'm sure that theme will come up on this podcast, on the antithesis. But nonetheless, you must not make the mistake, all too common, including in the church today, of thinking that empathy and inclusiveness and a listening spirit is social, and those are feminine traits predominantly, not bad, but feminine traits, and aggression, assertiveness, and risk-taking is antisocial, and those are masculine traits in general. You must not buy that paradigm. Don't don't embrace utopian activism. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your life is supposed to be safe in the sense that there is no challenge, there is no risk, there is no hardship. If a cause is virtuous and worthy, it will involve a great challenge. It will not be easy in a fallen world. And Christianity is not. We do not follow a tame lion, but we do follow a good one. To riff off of C.S. Lewis, God is not tame. God is not fearful. Jesus was not afraid of the darkness. He came into the world and he came to face down the devil and the devil did his worst to oppose him and ruin him and hijack his mission. But the devil did not succeed. Light has come into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1.5, and it never will. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.